Okay, we're back at Ginnamine. Fun stuff. Does that look weird to you guys? Yeah. Hmm. Oh, we'll make it work. It's alright. Okay. Book of James, written by God. Well, authored by God, written by James. And about 45 to 50 AD, and it's written to the Diasporas, those who are scattered from Jerusalem. If I sound dry and boring during this time, it's because I'm kind of sick of repeating it. We got a lot of verses left in the book to get through, so it's <laughs> going to be a lot more of a repetition. You could be reading. I, are you guys already thinking this way before you get here? Yeah, <laughs> it was like, please, yes. <laughs> I will say this one because we deal with it a little bit tonight. Um, true spirituality is evidenced in faith and action. You know the other three ev evidences um, that we're going to get to. And James teaches us the mechanics and the definition of what it means to be truly spiritual. To stay off, the only thing I want to uh, review here is it's a complete dependency based on response. You understand it has to have an object which does a work to support the dependency placed upon it. Yeah, same concept as sitting in a chair. Model of humanity. I almost dropped this one out, but we do use it tonight, so I figured we might as well leave it in. God the Father is initiator, mankind's responder. This is how we were designed to operate. When we just operate outside of this design, we operate outside of God's blueprints, which is outside of his righteousness. Righteousness, again, means conforming to specifications of the blueprints of the plan. God's the Father. He makes the plan, and we conform to his blueprints. Human viewpoint is a process of thought or manner of thinking which is based on data perceived and developed by the human senses within the realms of this world system. Divine viewpoint is what we should be using, and it, it actually trumps human viewpoint when it's employed. It's a process of thought or manner of thinking which is based upon dependence upon spiritual truth doctrines of God's world system. Another thing, in other words, those truths that we learn about how to deal with certain situations in, uh, that we face in our life and the truths that we learn from God's Word. Review of taste, idios, epithumios, the one's own sin nature or one's own lust. The scripture identifies three types of dominant lust patterns within humanity. Keyword there, dominant. You will have all three of these in effect at some point in your life and you will be caught in all three of these areas at some point in your life in sin but you have a dominant lust pattern, hopefully you're starting to figure yours out so that you can combat uh, your own lust and the temptation process you face. It will either be in lust of the flesh areas, satisfaction of the senses uh, or the body, lust of the eyes, uh, satisfaction of material objects, getting and consuming material, material objects, and then pride of life, uh, boasting or boosting one's own ego publicly, privately, internally, or externally. We get those from 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Any questions on those? Good. Alright, review of verse 14. Verse 14 of James chapter 1 says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. That's the New American Standard Translation. We looked at that last study session, and we came out with these three principles, along with a number of others, but these were the three key points from that verse specifically. Number one, the, individual's, the individual lust pattern you possess is the agent under which you will be tested. It is under your lust pattern's authority or governance that you will be tested. <clears throat> Number two, you will be, will be dragged out by force under your lust pattern. Your goal will not be to go out and seek out satisfaction of your lust pattern, but you will be dragged out under the authority of your lust pattern to some sort of trap, with, or what I'm calling now testation, um, and we'll get through that tonight too. You'll be dragged out by force to that point. Number three, you will be baited by Satan and company under your lust pattern. They will attack you under your lust pattern. They know it. 
That's why it's so easy for you to fall victim to it because you're vulnerable at that one spot. Um, they don't even have to worry about finding other vulnerabilities. You've got that one, it's working for them. There's no reason to change it until that vulnerability ceases to exist. Any questions on those as far as the review goes? There's a related question. I was thinking about this week. Do you think that demons um, or Satan can plant ideas in our head? I kind of don't think, I kind of lean against it, but. There is biblical evidence that they can manipulate circumstances that trigger right. certain thoughts within us. Right. And there is some thought, well, I haven't studied it personally, that they actually can submit some sort of thought in our head. Um, and I think externally, I can, they, you know, they can control yeah. that. But when, when, we, when we have Christ within us... And that's, that's, that's part of the conflict that I have with it myself, is that if yeah. we have the Holy Spirit within us, if they can submit a thought through us, or to us, then why can't they uh, possess us? Which yeah. Bible says they clearly cannot do. So I, I think it needs to be studied. But okay. beyond that, yeah, it's it's a thought that's out there and it's prevalent. Yeah. Okay. I, I think predominantly, though, it's more circumstantial, the yeah. external circumstances that they, they bring up that put something in our way that we see that recreates the thought. I can think um, of a time in the Bible where it talks about that. I don't know. I was just curious. Could. You could? I couldn't. Oh. I was trying to think. I read some it's going to come from studying. Lewis kind of acted as if that was possible, but C.S. Lewis was a great thinker, but not God. Yeah. yeah um, it's probably going to come out in studying and harmonizing other things about angels and demons and what their, their capabilities are, as well as like this kind of a study on the temptation of man, or the testing of man. Would that fall under the oppression rather than the possession? Yeah, oppression is externally applied to an object versus internally submitted, though. Uh, which so part so of the oppression is either circumstantial or in front of you, or whether they're actually physically holding you down. I don't know how you would. The the question yeah. is how do you get Obviously how does that thought get in there? They're not omniscient, so they don't right. know what we're thinking. Right. Well, and on, on that note, there is a verse, and I, I need to let it ruminate a little bit and see if I can figure out. There is a verse that says, be careful how you, be, be careful, basically it says, be careful of what you reveal through your mouth or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I need to look at the verse before I yeah, spit it, it out there. I, I don't know, I, it's back there in the cobwebs. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's the rough paraphrase of it. So that, yeah. that was the, the point behind it. Huh. Anyway. Okay, maybe something to do with the armor of God if you're interested later. Yeah. Alright, that leads us to James 1.15, which is a part of what I'm calling part two of the process of testation. I was having a hard time with choosing between test and tempt and test and tempt, so I'm just mixing them together. We're calling it testation, alright? It's a test. It's a trial that is testing you, but we understand it in English as this te temptation concept. Now, the reason I didn't go with temptation is because it's actually not temptation. It's a test that within that test, we are tempted towards an object. We are baited to that and lured to it. So I didn't want to call it temptation because that's only a part of the overall process. So I'm calling it testation just because of that blend of, of the way the test is used. It's applied in a way to try and draw out that character from you and, and to get you to fail in that challenge. So when I refer to testation, it's the same that I've been referring to as um, being tried or tested. Um, 
It's still from that same word parazo, which means to test something to see what it's made of and to reveal its character, to learn what it's made of. So James chapter 1, verse 15 says, Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This is a continuation off the thought that was put forth in James 1.14, which is why we just did the review on that. The Greek phrase, Ita he epithumia sulabusa. It's a fun word I know. Sulabusa. <laughs> Kicks off the verse. And James uses that word, Ita, to move us into what is the second part of this process of testation. The first part being verse 14, being dragged out and then baited. Okay, that's the first part of testation. But then you get this second part, and it has this finality of the testing being made complete, and therefore there's this conception that occurs when the... Well, I, I'll get there over the next 50 slides. But <clears throat> So James uses this word ita as an adverb to, to move us from the first part to the second part. He, so he's ending that first part saying, once that part's completed, then this happens. And then once that happens, this happens. It's a part of a process that, that we use uh, when we're given a list or identifying how a process works. Do this, then this, then this, then this. So through ita, James summarizes verse 14 as part one or phase one of the testation process. Ita is an adverb which is used to transition from one part of a process to the next part in the sequence. James's use of ita is consistent with its nature, and therefore ita is to be translated as what it literally means, then. Now you can see the New American Standard has translated it then, when. Other translations, I think, have done wherefore. Um, that might be King James only, though. Um, I think there was one other option out there. If I, uh, I don't remember what it is. It may have been therefore, or finally therefore. Something like that nature. They're getting the wind off, wind off the conceived, though, aren't they? Uh, no, actually, it's a combination between the two. It's it's thought through from Ita. <clears throat> the because it's then once and then this happens. This is the process. The progression is part of Ita. Um, so Ita mean literally means then, and it's followed by a construct which is given by James to add clarity to the first part of the process, verse fourteen as well as separate the different parts that are remaining clearly from one another. Now again, that word construct is a, just a grouping of words that carry some sort of meaning. That's all it is, okay? So think of like when you construct a house, you gotta first build a wall. The wall's part of the house, but the boards that are in that wall, those are the, what you use to construct that wall. So this first phrase is a construct because it's not the entire thought. It's not the whole house. It's just a part of what it is. So when I use that word construct, that's what I'm referring to, a part of the bigger picture the words that we're looking at right then. And you can't call it a phrase or a clause because they don't really fit. A phrase would work pretty decently, but don't get confused by that word construct. It's just simply there to identify the, the different grouping of words we're talking about. <clears throat> okay. The construct that James moves on to is hey epithumia sulabusa, and it literally means the lust having taken together. This is the completion of the process which began in verse 14. The understanding, then, is that the lust of man takes the desired object as well as the man and brings them together. Okay, so in verse 14, we had each man being tempted when, what? He was dragged away and enticed under his own lust. So there's an object that's on the trap that he's been baited for. That that object is what he desires. Otherwise, he wouldn't go for the trap. It doesn't work. So he's got this object of his desire, and then he is the other thing. He is the individual that is being attracted to that object. So you've got these two things. 
these two objects, the one being the man, one being the desired object, or the lusted after object. And the lust pattern of the man, under, under his lust, he, those two are brought together, the man and the object. That'll make a little more sense when we get going here um, to see kind of how that harmonizes with what, what's being taught here um, in James 1.15. So the understanding with hey epithumia sulabusa is that the lust of man, hey epithumia, is the one that takes the desired object as well as the man and brings them together. That sulabusa has conceived, it literally means take together, um, with su being together, um, and then Lam, labusa coming from lambano, which means to take or grab hold of. So the concept is actually you're taking two things, you're grabbing hold of them, and you're actually making them one, whether figuratively or physically. So if you're baking, you've got eggs and butter. So don't mix that great, but it works. You take each one and you squish them together, what happens? You mix them together, okay? <laughs> Try eggs and, and flour, okay? When you do that, you make a dough out of it, right? You're making them one, but it's from two parts, okay? That'd be the physical kind of concept. Figuratively, we're looking at the man and his the object he's been desired. It's actually coming together to be made one. And it's going to be that kind of conception, cohabitation concept. <clears throat> to better understand the concept, we need to, uh, the concept of Sulabusa, we need to understand Sulabusa better. Uh, it's been translated as a New American, in the New American Standard as uh, having been conceived or has conceived. It's a participle, which is a verbal adjective. And it refers to hey epithumia, or the lust of the individual being tested. In other words, the subject of the participle, the one being um, described by the participle and performing the action of the participle, participle is hey epithumia, the lust. So the lust is the one that has conceived. Verse 14, James identified that under each individual specific lust pattern, the dominant lust pattern of the individual's sin nature, he is dragged away and the trap is baited. Yet in verse 15, James changes that and goes to a different zoomed out level, if you will. He, instead of looking at a specific, the specific individual uh, lust pattern, he says any lust pattern of any individual, this is what it does. So whether you're lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or pride of life, whatever lust that is, you're getting into a protocol now that doesn't matter what your specific one is, you're, it's just the way that this works. Okay? So he zooms out or goes more generic and changes from a specific the specific uh, lust of that individual in verse 14 to any lust of any man. <clears throat> it's the generic lust pattern which creates a constant within the equation James is identifying through this process. Now in an algebraic equation, okay, there's things that we call variables and things that we call constants. Constants don't change, they remain constant, right? You can trust that those will be the same. What changes are the variables, the x. x plus 3 will always be x plus 3. But if you have 3 changed to 4, then x plus 3, or x plus 4 is x plus 4. So the, the hard written part of the equation, the constants, the things that don't change, this is what we're getting at here. The generic lust pattern is a constant in the equation of this process of testation. It is always there, it does not change. Whatever that lust is, it is there, it's the same thing. It's lust. We're not talking about the specific individual one, that would be a variable. When the lust of the flesh does this, then this happens. When the lust of the eyes does this, this happens. When the pride of life does this, this happens. No, this is when lust does this, it ha this happens. Now the variables come down to the experience. Well, how are you being tested? What's on the bait? Okay, what do you desire? What, those are the things that change. But what stays the same is that the lust is the, uh, the subject 
that actually performs the action of conceiving or bringing these two things together, the man and, his, and the, the thing he's lusting after. So when the lust pattern of any individual takes together the, the desired object and the individual which desires it, it sulabusas. That's a Greekism in English. It brings these two together and makes them one. Okay, it takes them, puts them together, they're one object that is being held on to. No, I put the apostrophe there. Yes, it's a verb. Right. I put the apostrophe there just to show the breakup between the two languages. Right. Yeah, it's not possessive, sorry. No, that's, I just thought it was misinterpreting. So when the lust pattern of an individual takes the desired object and the individual, that's that sulabusa concept. It takes them and it puts them together to make one thing out of them. Sulabusa is an aorist active participle from the root word sulambano, which literally is defined as to take together. The root word carries with the idea of taking hold of or seizing two things together so that they are one, either figuratively or literally. You'll see if you look at the dictionary's definitions of, um, not a cop, but we'll use modern terms to define it, a cop going after like a burglar. And when he gets to him, he seizes him and he handcuffs himself and handcuffs the burglar. They become that one. That's the concept being employed. Okay, that may not be the protocol in our today's day and age, but you can see how that idea carries with the two. When they are taken together and brought together, they are made one in that sense. Um, so the root word, su lambano, carries with the idea of taking hold or seizing two things together so that they are one, whether figuratively or literally. They may not be physically one object like we had with the eggs and the flower. But with the idea of something that's desired and the individual, they are two separate entities, but they're made one in the sense of their relationship together. The complete word study dictionary of the New Testament defines sulabusa this way, to catch hold of, to enclose in the hands, figuratively meaning to comprehend, grasp, seize, collect, collect as scattered troops, and clasp to oneself. So there's this concept of going out to get, get two objects and bring them together. It is used towards persons in the sense of taking by authority or force, but it always includes the idea of two objects or persons in the act. Now remember last verse, in verse 14, we had being dragged out and it was dragged out by force. You could either fight it or you could just not resist it and you're still dragged out either way. The concept of the lust is that it's forcing you, it's dragging you out. We've got harmony here with these definitions of the sulabusa word that identifies that there's authority or force being employed by the act by its actor onto two other objects. So there's got harmony with the lust dragging out the individual, and you've got harmony with the lust putting these things together. There's an authority. We also said last week that that little word uh, hupo for under identified that the lust lust pattern of that individual was over them in authority. They were victimed to it, if you will. It was over them in power. Now, if we've, been, if we've accepted Christ, that no longer has any power over us. We just choose to let it control us. But the power is taken away. So we've got this idea of authority of the lust pattern. That the lust has authority over us. And so it takes us, and remember epithumia is this irrational desire for something you know isn't good for you, or you know isn't right, or isn't going to satisfy you, but you want it anyway. And it's a felt uh, desire, not a planned desire. So in that sense, it's illogical because <clears throat> you know it's bad and you know it's wrong, but you still want it and desire it. So that lust has authority over you. 
If you're not saved, you have no choice but to be under the power of that authority. doesn't mean you always do whatever you're desiring, but what it means is that you have no choice but to let that, that lust power be, a, lust be an authority over you. Now, when we're, once we're saved, we have the choice to either submit to God or submit to our, to our lust pattern, ultimately. Um, we think we're submitting to ourselves, but really we're not even in control because we're submitting to this. Those are your two choices. You got God or your own lust. <clears throat> so, Sulabusa has that concept of force and authority just like we've got with epithumia, just like we had with that little preposition hoople for under, um, and just like we had with uh, ex ekelmenos, which is that word to drag out by force. As an aorist active participle, the subject is the one performing the action to, hold, to take hold of two objects and make them one together. The aorist tense identifies that the action occurs in a point in time. Okay, it's a snapshot event. We'll look at the active voice or, and the aorist tense in just a second, a little more in depth. But that aorist tense is a snapshot, like a Polaroid. You take a Polaroid, what's on there? That time, that point in time is on that Polaroid. Think of it in that sense. Um, it's not a continuous action, not a past action. Usually the aorist tense refers to an action which occurred previously. It's already actually occurred, not one in the future. You do have future aorists that come to play at some point. So that active voice, remember we said it's an aorist active participle. The active voice identifies that the subject performs the action. Sulabusa is in the active voice, and this identifies the subject as one who performs the action to take together. What, what's the subject of Sulabusa? It's epithumia, that lust. Now, the participle, and the aorist participle in Koine Greek, identifies action, this is on the second paragraph, identifies action, I transferred this slide without reading the rest of it. When an aorist participle is used in conjunction with an aorist main verb, which we don't have in this case, when that is the case, the expression is simultaneous. In all other cases, except where context demands otherwise, the aorist participle expresses action antecedent or prior to the main verb. Okay, in other words, the participle happens before the main verb. So what's the participle? To take together. What's the main verb? That's what we need to figure out. Okay, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We're looking at that aorist participle conceived, which is that to take together concept, and it gives birth to, which is from tiktai, is the main verb. Okay, so what we're saying, because this is an aorist participle, is that the conception, or the taking together, happens before the birth. Does that make sense? Okay. Is that an aorist participle? That's an aorist participle, yeah. Only an aorist participle. Uh-huh. I like the little word bubble. Thank you. Yeah, I know. I'll see more of those. Yeah, yeah. I've seen them at least a couple times. Yeah. You can say that again. I know they're in here just because you found them new. Is that true? Rediscovered an old old toy. So an aorist participle, unless it has an aorist main verb, which we don't have in this case, is going to always be prior to the main verb, the action of the main verb. So the giving birth happens after the conception or the taking together. So red comes before orange. There is participle, and this slide pretty much is just saying the same thing. Sulabusa means to take together. It's been translated as conceived. It occurs prior to the present main verb of tiktai, which means it brings forth or gives birth to. 
Now what's the subject in these actions? We have got the same subject. It's hey epithumia, the subject of sulabusa. Again is hey epithumia, the lust of an individual. So lust is the one that takes together, the one that conceives, and lust is the one that brings forth. We'll get to the bring forth in a little bit, just hang on to it for now. So the lust of the individual is the one performing the action to take together two objects. And again, it's by force, it's to make them one and to have them in that one uh, object or one entity capacity, whether figuratively or literally. The two objects which are taken hold of by the lust are the individual to whom the lust belongs and the object of the individual's lust, the bait on the trap from verse 14. When these two things combine together, sin occurs. So verse 14 was, this is temptation. This is the testation process. Okay? Someone is tested when they are dragged out and enticed. When the trap is set for them and they are dragged out to it and baited by it. That is not sin yet. When the bait and the individual become one, that is when you have the trap having been sprung, causing sin. So when you combine them together, that's when sin occurs. Prior to that combination, it doesn't happen. The individual and the bait which he is lusting for are brought together under the lust pattern of the individual. In other words, the lust of the individual drags the individual to the bait in the trap and makes them one together. Sin occurs at this point when the individual and the bait become one together. Again, it's that when they combine to one, that's when the lust, or that's when the, the sin occurs. This is what Sulabusa refers to as to take together. It is a reference to two objects coming together and being made as one. I will spare you all and myself the sex education example of conception, which is understandably the New American Standard translator's choice in defining Sulabusa as they have. I'm assuming all of us have gone through that kind of concept at one point. That conception process, I'm just going to spare it and I almost start walking into it, right? That conception process is very good at getting the idea of um, sulabusa and what's going on there. The phrase aita hey epithumia sulabusa is more literally understood through the English phrase than the lust having performed the action of taking together in a point in time. Now that's not going to make sense because we don't know what the lust took together. Oh, we know that part, but we don't know what else is following this that phrase. Okay, so those are our four words that produce that concept. Then the lust having performed the action taken together in a point in time. In that point in time in that snapshot Polaroid concept. Okay, take a breather because we're going to side note number one. In just a moment. Alright, side note number one. In verse 14, James gives the first phase of the testing of the individual. This is all a part of the principle and protocol regarding the testing of an individual under his specific lust pattern. A, the individual is baited into the trap with bait that appeals to a specific lust pattern. Again, if the bait isn't appealing, you don't care. It's not that big of a deal. B, under the lust pattern, the individual is drawn away from divine thought process and fellowship with God towards human thought process and fellowship with darkness. Here's the divine thought process. God gives us all things that we need to satisfy us in all ways. Okay? We, well, in all ways except for unrighteous ways, I guess I should say. He's got this in what we call grace provision, is that concept that God gives us everything we need that is righteous, and that's all we really should need. 
So he gives us this, and the divine thought process is that what God has given us and how God satisfies our desires and takes care of that through his word, not through us saying, hey, I want a new car, give it to me, but through him saying, hey, here are the principles for saving, here's the principles for buying, here's all these principles for what's going on with your finances, and you need to be a steward to me first before you can be a steward to those in the world. So you've got this divine thought process that we should be living by, but when temptation or testation occurs, we are taken in our, our attitude, our mindset changes and looks towards this new, more human thought process that, hey, there's that thing I want. God hasn't given it to me, but I still want it. And it's not within his scope of righteousness, but I still want it. So when we change from wanting righteousness, to put it simply, or wanting to wanting unrighteousness, we've got a change from divine thought process to human thought process. We also then change from fellowship with God to fellowship with darkness, according to 1 John chapter 1. Again, your lust pattern is your vulnerability that is what causes you to be drawn away from divine thought process. So far, we sound pretty hopeless. <laughs> After flirting with the bait for a length of time, the individual volitionally, big word right there, chooses to possess it. Until the choice is made by the individual to pursue the bait, no sin has occurred. Okay, now, the lust is what combines the two together. It takes the individual and it takes the object and puts them together. But the only way that the lust can do that is if you volitionally allow it to. So what happens is you flirt with the bait, you flirt with the bait, you nibble off the cheese, you nibble off the peanut butter, and then all of a sudden you say, I'm going to go for it. Okay, now if you're nibbling, you're already past that point for the record because you're becoming one with it. But... You can get that idea that when you flirt with the concept or the thought is, oh, no, I shouldn't do that. No, I shouldn't do that. And it's like it keeps coming back, it keeps coming back, and you keep fighting it. That until you've actually said, okay, I'm going to do that, either through your actions or through a, a conscious, volitional decision out loud or in your head, you have not yet sinned, according to this. So this is temptation then. The observation of something desired, which is outside of God's grace provision. Again, God's grace provision references those things which God gives in grace, regardless of our achievement or attitude towards Him, that are supposed to be good enough for us if we are trusting Him. So this is temptation, the observation of something desired, which is outside of God's grace provision, what He has provided for us. When the individual chooses to pursue possession of that desire, whether mentally or physically, he has given himself up to his lust pattern for the purpose of being taken to the bait and made one with it. Your free will, the volition that God designed and built you with as part of being made in His image, is what He has given you as a tool to combat your lust pattern. To combat that desire. So that when you feel overwhelmed with a desire or a want for that thing, that it's just the feeling is there, the thought is there, you just, you gotta have it. You can take a step back and recognize, hey, this is illogical. I know that's not good for me. I've been there before. I know that's not good for me because it's not given from God. I know that's not good for me because God says it's worthless. And you can logically think through it and say, the bait's there, I don't want it anymore. But the problem is we have to use that volition rather than let the bait take our feelings out into the equation and take us out of it. So the, when the individual chooses to pursue possessions of the desire, whether mentally or phys physically, he has given himself up to his lust pattern for the purpose of being taken to the bait and made one with it. You're basically saying, Take me along. Let's go. 
This is therefore sin under the testation context. The volitional choice to pursue something desired, which is outside of God's grace provision. Okay, it's that decision you make to say, I'm going for it. And usually it's not, eh, okay, I'll go. Usually it's, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes. And at that point, you're kind of in the limbo of already not trusting God because you're evaluating that thing, saying this looks good, but you're probably not remembering, oh yeah, God says no. Or, oh yeah, God says it's not good. So you're probably already at that point where you're starting to get too far down to stop yourself. You can only stop yourself until sin has conceived. It has been identified, this is a parenthetical note, means parentheses. It has been identified that one of the evidences of true spirituality, according to James, is the concept of faith in action. Faith, coming from pisteion, is a noun, or pisteos, is a noun which means complete dependency. It's part of that review that we do every week. In the process of testation, the individual sins when he makes the volitional choice to pursue the object of his desire. What he is doing is he is transferring his dependency from divine viewpoint and fellowship with God and what God has provided to human viewpoint and fellowship with darkness and what God has said this is unrighteous or worthless. So there's a dependency upon God that is now transferred to a dependency upon that object. In the process of testation, the individual sins when he makes the volitional choice to pursue the object of his desire, which is outside the grace provision of God. He is transferring his dependency from God's provision to something outside of God's provision. And that's what makes it a change in dependency. It's going from dependence upon God and what God's provided to dependence upon himself and what he can provide and what the world has provided. Now that asterisk there, that which God provides, it refers to the grace provision of God, that which God provides in loving righteousness apart from human achievement. Nothing you can do can earn God's grace. So the grace provision of God is succinctly identified as that which God provides in love and righteousness apart from human achievement. It's solely his to give. It's solely his choice to do it or not. It's part of his character. And that righteousness part means that it's within his blueprints of the plan for your life, for uh, his promises to believers, um, all of those things. So the process of, of testation, the sin occurs when the individual chooses to pursue the bait and go outside of that grace provision of God and place its dependency upon that bait rather than upon God to satisfy him. This can be identified through the following set of equations. Knowledge plus faith equals belief, which is equivalent to action. Not two slides with asterisks. This is great. Actions are the result of beliefs. Let's, just, let's go back and grab that equation before we get to the action part. Knowledge plus faith equals belief, which then is equivalent to action. What you know and depend upon equals your belief. Now what I should say probably is that what you know and are depending upon equals what you believe. You may have a belief regarding something, but you may not be believing that belief. You may have a belief regarding something, but you may not be believing that belief. In other words, you may have a dependency that's based upon a truth that you know is right and true but you may not be depending upon that truth at any given point in your life. Our beliefs are equivalent to action. Actions are the result of our beliefs. I threw out a little bit here um, without getting too much into the heart, but the heart in the Old Testament and the heart in the New Testament have the same connotation. 
It's the place where you store your norms and standards, the operating procedures. It's not the blood pump that pumps your blood through your body. Okay, that was symbolic of the life that controlled your action. And the, in the Hebrew, they use body parts in a magnificent way to explain different types of things. You've got emotions and compassion in the gut and the reins and the, and the uh, different intestines. Different parts of the body actually refer to these different things. The heart refers to the right frontal lobe, which is where we store our beliefs, our norms and standards. And a norm and standard, in other words, is something that you normally would do, normally would operate in, normally would think. Uh, a standard is something that you've got, hey, this is what I do in my everyday life. Okay, um, You may have decided to put the right shoe or right sock on first. You may decide a long ago, time ago that you put the socks on, then you put the pants on in the morning when you get, up, get ready to go to church. You may have decided, I don't care which order it goes on, just go on whatever order I can get it on in. But you may have a set of standards or enormous standards that is there that when you wake up, this is the protocol, the procedure you go through. Now, it may not be a conscious thought out thing, and usually within the heart, it's not. Because when it's thought out, now we're doing evaluation. So these are like the subconscious um, slash beliefs that we have, have that dictate our normal everyday life. What you can learn from your, from your actions is what you actually depend upon. Is lying wrong? The Bible says yes. Is it sin? Yes. Is it worthwhile? The Bible says no. Do you believe that? Okay, you may believe it or believe that that's true, but you may still find yourself lying. Why? You know it's wrong, but you don't believe that it's wrong. Or you believe that it's going to do something for you other than what God says it will do. In other words, the debate of lying is better than what God says that righteousness and truth would be. We'll keep working on that one. Knowledge plus faith equals belief, and your belief is equivalent to action. From the time we are born, we are obtaining data, which we evaluate and process into knowledge. The knowledge we choose to depend upon become our beliefs. Our beliefs produce our actions. Every action you have is the result of a belief you possess. You came here for some unknown reason. I believe you've come here for the Bible study. I could be wrong. Well, we know it's not dinner. <laughs> Certainly not dinner, because no one's really eating dinner, which is fine. No pressure. <laughs> but my belief is dependent upon my knowledge. Some of our conversations we've had at church and other outings where you guys are asking questions and, and have already studied some stuff on your own that, you're ask, that we're talking about and, and conversing with, so I have a belief that you want to pursue knowledge. Others, I don't know why, just I like to think people like this stuff. Um, it, should, it should be that way, I would think. So my knowledge is dependent upon what I perceive through our interaction. That's how we get data. Data comes in through the senses. I've got a nice diagram that I think Noel's the only one that's ever actually seen it besides Robin. It talks about our senses, bring it in through the back parietal lobe of our brain. It goes through and we actually evaluate it with whatever worldview we've got or whatever evaluation process we have to say this is good, this is worthwhile, this is bad, it's junky, I don't really care. Um, we actually file everything away, but the stuff that we hang on to is the stuff that we value. And when we value it, it's because through our evaluation process, we've said this is good in some way. This is beneficial in some way. I can use this. It satisfies me something. It's right. It's wrong. Whatever. Once we have that knowledge, it crosses over to our right frontal lobe when we choose to depend upon it. People talk about applying Bible to your life. You want to apply it to your life. It means you've got to depend upon it. If the Bible says that God will never leave you nor forsake you, don't think otherwise. Don't even give it a chance to think otherwise. If he's not going to leave you nor forsake you, that's what the Bible says. It's true, right? So why then do we ever feel alone? 
Now, there are going to be times when you're going to stop believing that that's true. Oh, I've sinned too much. Or today's Tuesday and God doesn't like Tuesdays. Whatever it may be. And because sometimes it's that stupid, right? I mean, we've all been there at some point, right? So, so it comes down to, do we trust what we know is right or what we feel is right? That's that human thought process versus divine thought process. We have to change our thought process from being human to divine. Taking what God says that he will never leave us or forsake us and believing it, depending upon that, to change our attitude and our action rather than how we feel in that day. That's what we're getting at here, is our beliefs produce our actions. Now this is one of the reasons, this whole concept, why we can know something's wrong and still do it. Knowing something's right or wrong does not mean we believe it. Because it doesn't mean that we're placing our dependency upon that knowledge at, every, or at all given times. If, if that was true, then we would not sin on this earth. Because we'd be completely dependent upon God. Now, there's two factors here. One is us, and the other is everyone else. Other people sin. Our response to that can be righteous or sinful, right? So <clears throat> we have to know what is right and then depend upon it in all situations in order to produce righteousness. Because it, what we find is that we're actually not producing righteousness. It's actually that the righteousness is produced through us depending upon God to bring that out of us is what it comes down to. So knowing something's right doesn't mean that you believe it's right or are depending upon it as being right. In the example of testation provided by James in verses 14 to 15, the equation looks slightly different. <coughs> same principles. Desire plus faith equals sin. And we, can, and we can use the same equation. Knowledge plus faith, faith equals belief. In this, I've changed the words just to match this, this exact situation. But that word desire is the same thing as knowledge. Why do you desire? Because you know, you've been there before. It's good, you like it, whatever. The desire that you have plus the dependency upon that desire produces sin. Okay, Your action, after evaluating that object that's, that's out there that's the bait on the trap and saying, ooh, it looks good, I might want it, I don't really know, I shouldn't have it, I know that, but I really, really want it. And then you say, okay, I'm going to go for it because it's going to satisfy me. That's that step of placing your dependency upon it. That's what produces sin. So this, this whole desire plus faith and, and knowledge plus faith, this isn't just with temptation. The desire plus faith is for temptation and testation. But this, this equation of knowledge plus faith equals belief, this is how we run our lives. This is, this is not just for righteousness. Or if you want to be righteous, do this. What this is, is we operate under this equation every second of the day. We, what we depend upon is based upon what we know. What we know is based upon what we've evaluated as true or as good or beneficial to us in some way. We each have our different set of standards. We each have our different evaluation processes. That's part of our personality. But what we believe is a result of what we depend upon, and what we depend upon is knowledge, and that knowledge is what actually produces the actions within us when we depend upon it. Whether it's righteous or unrighteous, this is how we operate every day. Prove me wrong. Good luck. I operated under the principle that I could prove someone wrong when they said that. You can't. Because I was believing, based upon my knowledge, that I could actually prove them wrong, and I couldn't. I had wrong knowledge. So, that leads me to my next point, and this is all side note of the parenthetical note at one of side one, side note one. It's pretty good. We're getting there. What you know to be true or right depends on its source. Now, obviously, as a Bible study, and as Christians, we want our source to be God's Word. Specifically, God teaching us through God's Word. Because you can't just look at the Bible from an out-of-fellowship standpoint, from a human viewpoint, philosophy, thought process, and come out with all sorts of crazy, wacko stuff. Okay? No examples needed, right? 
there, there's plenty of them out there, and we're all nodding, and I, Thomas is very excited about something. I got another one to share with you later, too. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> we have plenty of examples evident where it's obvious that God is not telling someone to do what they say he's telling them to do, or where God's word doesn't teach what someone's saying it teaches. It's not about what they teach, it's about what the Bible says. Now, the Bible is only able to be interpreted when we get rid of our own bias and let God teach us, which means we have to seek Him first and not what His Word says. We have to seek Him and say, God, what are you going to teach? And then that's it. No more. Don't pursue anything about, I'm going to go look at James 1 and see what you're going to teach. No. What are you going to teach? If God directs you to a verse, that's great. Whatever. In your study, you have to have that concept of, it's God's the teacher to teach me through His Word. He's revealed it to us. We've got a brain that He's given us to use, but only to use within the relationship structure that He's created it to be used in. We're never here on our own, doing our own thing. Our knowledge is only as good as our evaluation process. How do we evaluate things? This is what I mentioned, our bias, right, and our worldview. We have to actually have that to be changed also before we can come out with some sort of evaluation process that works for us on a consistent basis. This is why being a literal, grammatical, historical, etymological, all sorts of other logicals, I can't debate someone who comes from a non-literal side. We can look at the same verse and be proven two different points because they'll take it from a story or allegorical kind of concept and I'll take it from a literal concept. It doesn't work. The approach is different. The evaluation is different. You've got to get on the same approach first. We have to get on the same approach with God for what this how He set this world up to work. Which is why after the election results or whatever, we can just say, you know what? That's terrible for this country. As a citizen, I'm very concerned for it. But God has a bigger plan. And divine thought process overrules our human thought process of the through human thought process of feeling upset about the election results. Now, the data that we have, what we set before our perception. If you want to get good stuff, I'm trying to be careful about these examples. But if you want to get good stuff, say, okay, a generic soda versus a regular soda. Pop, sorry, a generic pop versus a regular pop. Forgot I'm in the Pacific Northwest. Everyone calls it pop up here. So, <laughs> California, you ask for a pop, you get hit. So, it's, it's a little different. So, what what's better, a generic pop or a regular pop? It depends, right? The generic's a knockoff, so we would say because it's a knockoff, it's not as good a quality or it's not as valuable as the other one. But it's also less expensive, so depending on our criteria, right? But if you want to change your thought process. And like Romans 12, 1, say, be transformed and be renewed. Have your mind renovated by the word of God so you can prove what the will of God is. What are you going to set before your eyes? What are you going to set before you? You're not going to go out and go to the Satan occult church. You're not going to go out and, and look at things that aren't going to accomplish that goal, right? You want to saturate yourself with stuff, with spending time in the word, with being in your fellowship with God and your relationship at every second that you can. So that you actually put things in front of you the day that you perceive through that filter and give yourself a higher a better rate of under uh, of having better stuff to look at you get what I'm saying you want data that's actually gonna streamline the process versus have to kind of filter out all the all you got half junk over here and half good stuff over here you want mostly good stuff so you want to be in a position where you've put yourself that you can study stuff or look at stuff that's going to actually benefit the process that you're trying to undergo <clears throat> your data produces knowledge the knowledge of what you depend upon with that knowledge produces belief, which is your action. Your action is a result of your belief.
That's a long time on one slide. Okay. So desire plus faith equals sin. In the context that we have with James 14, James 1, 14 through 15, um, the desire is towards the bait on the trap, which is outside of God's grace provision. However, when the individual chooses or places chooses to pursue that bait, they are placing their dependency upon it to satisfy them rather than God's grace provision to satisfy them. Does that make sense? Go for the bait because you think it's going to satisfy you, whatever it may be. Okay. So there's the testation equation. Now, to, and this probably is beating the dead horse, I'm guessing, but to do this, the individual must remove their dependency upon God to satisfy their needs and desires and replace it onto the object baiting the trap. An individual cannot be simultaneously dependent upon God and the bait in the trap for satisfaction, for they are mutually against one another. The only reason that bait is in the trap is because it's unrighteous, because it's worthless. It's not something God's put there. Because again, James 1.13 says that God doesn't do that kind of stuff. He doesn't test us in that way. And he doesn't go for us like that. He's not trying to trip us off, up. So <clears throat> you can't be simultaneously dependent upon God and dependent upon world, if you will, or the, the things in the trap. God says, on one hand, the bait is worthless and not satisfactory. And the bait says, on the other hand, I'm going to satisfy you. One of the two are lying. Whichever you choose to place your dependency upon determines which you will believe in those statements. What you believe, whoever you believe in those statements, either the bait or God, will produce your action. Then for you will go for what God says or what the bait says. So when you take the bait, then that's when you step out of the realm of experiential sanctification. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's a good harmony. Yeah, and and we'll probably. I, I don't know if we actually get to that point. But we discussed part of that, or something connected to that, that I might be able to pull off on. Yeah. So up until that point where we take the bait and become one with the bait, and the lust makes us one with the bait, up until that point, we're still able to undergo experiential sanctification or spiritual maturity. Yeah. <clears throat> Faith in action is not some humanly reduced maxim for spiritual living in its most touted sense this is a sense that we get it usually in our in the churches, is that your faith must be evident to those around you through service in the church, community schools, etc. That's the byproduct of faith that is dependent upon God, of dependency that is dependent upon God. Is that we are doing what He's called us to. But faith in action, as we typically hear it, is this concept that you're supposed to, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to love. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to do this. Which are all true things. You should be doing these things. But not on your own. It's not your job to go and say, okay, I need more love today. I'm going to go eat some, some love cereal. And that's going to be more loving to me. No, the concept, I know, it's not very good either. So the concept is that you first and foremost are submitted to God and God produces that love within you. And that's that fruit of the Holy Spirit concept that we're coming at, or fruit of the Spirit concept that we hear about in Galatians. So faith in action as we get usually is that this concept that your faith must be evident to those around you through service in the community. Are you a Christian? Okay, do something about it. Show your faith. That's not what James is getting at in chapter 2 either. And we're going to get to that in chapter 2 if we ever make it that far. Rather, James teaches faith in action as this equation for living, either spiritually or carnally, meaning that knowledge plus faith equals action. That's what James produces as faith in action. What you know and what you depend upon. And when you depend upon that knowledge, produces your faith. Or is your... I blew that one big time. Let's try that again. What you know and what you depend upon produces your action. So knowledge plus faith equals action. That's the concept of faith in action that James chapter 1 is getting at. So when we say faith in action, don't think 
that your faith must be evident to those around you because you're a Christian. Think no. Faith in action is when you depend upon something, it produces action. When you depend upon knowledge, it produces action. Whatever knowledge you have, whether it's good or bad or faulty, is going to dictate what you produce. If the knowledge is bad and you depend upon it, you got bad action. If the knowledge is good and you don't depend upon it, you got bad action. Make sense? So if you're doing something you know you shouldn't be doing, you either have to look at the knowledge or look at whether you're depending upon what you know about that object. If you know you shouldn't be lying and you know that that's wrong and God says it's wrong, then you find that you're still lying, then you're not depending upon what God says about lying. Or you're thinking, well, lying will do something better than telling the truth in this situation. So either way, you're depending upon a non-truth. So your knowledge is bad. Or you're not depending upon what you know to be true in the first place. It makes it very simple to see your behavior and say, it's the knowledge that's bad. i got to fix that knowledge. Okay, knowledge is good. I'm depending upon it. We're good to go. Or say, knowledge is good. I'm just not depending upon it. God, help me to depend upon that. Show me how and teach me how. And then go from there. It makes it very easy to pull out. You only have two variables here. Is it the knowledge that's bad or the, the faith is bad? Once you figure out which one it is, you're good to go. The spiritual law of God identifies that you are dependent upon various truths, non-truths, desires, or doctrines. These dependencies are the result of data having been mined and accepted as good, valuable, or worthwhile in some sense to you. Our job is to let God give us what's good and for us to accept it, not to go out and find what's good on our own. Part of our process is that we've got half good and half bad, or 98% bad and 2% good, because we've only actually received 2%. And probably the salvation message is what we get down to for most of us in that concept. And the goal is to be completely opposite of that. You know, 98% and 2% the other way would be great. 100% is what we're looking for. But all that comes from the relationship with God and letting Him mine for you and give you when He's ready and when He says you're ready for the different truths that He has. As an evidence of true spirituality, James teaches that faith must be placed upon God and His truth. When the individual places their complete dependency upon God and His truth, it in turn produces action within them. No believer produces righteousness. No man ever has apart from God. The righteousness that is produced on this earth is produced by God through the believer who is dependent upon God and His truth as opposed to anything else, and this goes for Jesus of Nazareth as well. Jesus did not produce righteousness on his own. While he existed prior to his incarnation in flesh and blood as God, during his time on earth as a man, Jesus reduced himself to utilizing only those abilities, strengths, and skill sets of a human. In the greatest display of self-discipline we will ever see, Jesus of Nazareth submitted to the design which he helped establish in the Garden of Eden regarding humanity's relationship with the sovereign God of the universe. He helped create us. The Bible indicates that when God spoke, he's the one that actually formed of the God, he's the actual visible, well, the one that actually made what God said, revealed what that in physical form. That he's the one that creates the created the world. As God said, speak, or God spoke and made the light, and said, make light, God made, or Jesus made light. That's the concept we get with the harmonies and other passages in scripture. And then we have this, this second member of the God had come to earth and submit himself to the very creation that he created in the Garden of Eden as one of us. If that's not self-discipline, I don't know what is. Because he didn't lose the attributes of God. He was fully God and fully man. The Bible says that he laid them aside and constantly put them on a shelf in the sense that he doesn't use them, but he still possesses them. 
the righteousness which resulted in Jesus' actions and were attributed to him humanly, the miracles, all the things that he did, uh, work on the cross, were the result of God's working through him because of his dependency upon the Father and the Holy Spirit. See, when I gave you that model of humanity, and so that God's the initiator, God the Father's the initiator, and mankind's the responder, and that Jesus was the one that modeled that, it, you, you should be able to see it through this. That last sentence, the righteousness which was attributed, which was which resulted in those actions attributed to Jesus humanly were the result of God's working through him, not Jesus doing it. That righteousness is produced. When we depend upon God, what are we doing? We're not acting. We're depending upon him to do it. Now, God will say in our relationship with him, and when we're dependent upon him, do this. Sometimes it will be us doing it not apart from him, but within him and in the Holy Spirit. But it will be him, and we will depend upon him to give us those commands and to obey those commands. Not just to say, okay, God, you told me to do this. I'm going to go do it how I, how I think is the best way to do it. No. God says do this, and he's got the Holy Spirit given to you, and the resources given to you, and the time frame given to you to actually get you to accomplish that the way he wants you to. You can, get, you can see how this would get very micromanagey if you weren't too careful. And that's what, that's what will happen if you change your focus from the things of God, or from God to the things of God. Jesus' righteousness was the result of his dependence upon God, not upon himself. Now granted, he did not have a sin nature, but he still had to depend upon God in every aspect of life. So also should we be, according to Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have this attitude in yourselves is a command that says reflexively think the same way that Jesus thought and lived. How are we going to reflexively think unless we make it a part of our norms and standards? The way to make it a part of our norms and standards is to learn what we are supposed to do, identify it as truth, and depend upon it. When we do that, it becomes a part of our norms and standards. We build a pathway that actually the more we use that truth, the more quickly it is, and it becomes a reflex. Like when you hit your knee, or the doctor hits your knee, or you hit your elbow and it springs forward. There's a bunch of different ones all out there. I had a neurology, or neur, neuro guy. Neurologist, right? Mm -hmm. Neurologist. Probably should have him test my brain to figure out why I can't figure that part out. But a neurologist tapped my like shin bone and my big toe shot up. I didn't even know that was possible. We've got these reflexes that are built into our body. That's the concept of what we're supposed to do. Have this attitude in yourselves. Literally reads, think reflexively think this way. Not evaluate it, but this is the input, this is the output. Reflexively think this way. The same attitude which was in Christ Jesus. We can't do that unless we know the mechanics of what it means to be truly spiritual, have that faith and action concept, that when you know something and depend upon it, it produces action. The more you do that, the bigger the wheel track that you create, and you actually your brain actually connects it faster with dopamine. It gets broader and broader. It's a very amazing study that we won't do tonight. Now then, we're coming back to the process of testation. Now, so we're out of our parenthetical. We're out of our side note. Now then, once lust has taken the individual and the bait, and under its authority over each, made them one together, it produces sin. Okay, so we've got the individual who's now, with his volition, said, I'm going to go for the bait, and then he's taken by his lust, and the lust, and the 
takes the object and it puts them together and then it produces sin when it makes them one together. Tiktai is an active indicative verb which means to really bring forth. That indicative is the mood, it identifies reality. Um, so that's where we get that really part, to really or in reality bring forth. Voice, we said tiktai is in the active voice. This identifies the subject as one who performs the action to bring forth. What's the subject that's still lust? The lust of the individual is what performs the action to bring forth something. What is the thing we're looking for? And I put that little something in brackets to show you that it was mine. I put it there just to kind of ease the understanding of the, the word. Syntactically, we would look at this point for an accusative noun so that we could see the direct object or that what is being brought forth. We find it in hamartia, which is translated as sin. So such is realized, that accusative case is realized in hamartia, an accusative feminine noun. As an accusative, hamartia plays the role of the direct object which is being used in the action by the subject. Subject being the lust, therefore sin is the object which lust brings forth. Hamartia, we translate it as sin, it means literally to miss the mark. That makes sense if the bait is unrighteous, which is not conforming to God's mark, that if you take the bait, you have not conformed to God's mark. It makes logical sense. Sin is the object which lust brings forth. As a feminine noun, hamartia is identified as being based on response. I want to focus on this just a little bit because it's a perfect example for what that feminine gender does in Koine Greek. So I've highlighted hamartia's gender in this passage so that we can understand uh, regarding sin and its appearance in our lives, how it occurs. Koine Greek uses gender to identify relationship uh, structures and how things interact with one another rather than the biology. The biology is a factor in it. But the concept was that, oh, this is a male, he's an initiator. Or this is a, a male object, it's based on someone's initiation. Or a neuter identifying a tool or an instrument, this is something used to accomplish something. And the feminine gender identifying this is something that is a responder to something or is based on response. Depending on whether you have a person or a being, is whether it's the actor, or whether it's an object, is whether it's based on response. Hamartia is in the feminine gender. It is an object, and therefore it is based on response. So that means its existence is based on response to something. James has provided, this is side note too, by the way, James has provided the perfect illustration regarding the production of sin in the life of the believer. Because of the feminine gender, hamartia is identified as being based on response. Its existence is based on response to something by someone. This is part of its nature. No better example of this exists than the process of, of testation. The production of sin occurs this way. Number one, lust, or first, lust drags the individual to the bait. At this point, no sin has entered the picture, but Two, when the individual chooses to take the bait because he desires it and has the volitional ability to acquire it for himself, upon choosing that bait, sin is produced. So, sin's existence in that individual's experience in that point in time is a result of the individual's choice to take the bait. So that sin that's committed is based on the individual's volitional response to the bait. So the way the individual responds identifies the, or creates the sin. That sin is based on the response of that individual to the testation. Does that make sense? So the existence of sin in that point is based on the response of the volition of the individual and the desired object. When he acts and says, I want that object, I'm going to pursue it, and is made one with that object, the sin is the response. It's the result of that, if you will. 
Okay, so sin's existence is based on the res based on response. What response is the response of the volition of the, the individual to that desired object. In James, in James's example, found in verses 14 to 15, sin's existence in an individual's experience is the result of the individual's choice to take the bait. That sin is based on the individual's volitional response to the bait. Therefore, sin's existence is based on response. When you hear the feminine gender, that's what we're talking about, is this response or a responder concept. So the existence of sin in that, in that context is based on response of the person's volition. Okay, summary. We're almost done here. The process of testation, part two. The process of testation is summarized thusly. The individual is dragged to bait, which has been laid in appeal to his specific lust pattern. This is part of verse 14. We studied this last week. Once that individual is dragged to the bait that's been baited and laid specifically for him and his lust pattern, he either chooses to accept the bait or reject it. There was more on that slide. It's coming up here. Don't worry about it. That was a typo. I don't know why I let that kind of information slip out. What was the title? Yeah. Can't forget stuff. Did something wrong? <laughs> what? I'm a people pleaser. I don't like doing things wrong. <laughs> You're supposed to fight that, right? Right. For sure. No. The process of tastation is summarized thusly. <laughs> First, the individual is dragged to bait, which has been laid in appeal to his specific lust pattern. Second, that individual either chooses to accept that bait, which he desires, or to reject it. Side note number three. Nope, no slides for this. This is extra. This concept of being dragged to the bait is this concept of being forced to deal with it. Okay, in John 6.44, Jesus says that no man can come to me ex or, unless the Father draws him to me. That word draw is the same word for drag we have here. It means to drag by force. And what it's identifying is that it's kind of like forcing someone to look at what they've done wrong. And taking them and just saying, hey, look what you did. It's that concept of you're being forced to look at what you're, what's in front of you. You're dragged to this point of having to deal with the bait or having to deal with the cross. Now, <clears throat> with John 6.44... Jesus says, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him to me, drags him to me. But then John 12, 32, Jesus says that if I am lifted up on the cross, it actually says if I am lifted up, I will drag all men to me. And what he's saying is that he's going to forcefully make everyone deal with what he did on the cross at some point or another. That's that concept we have here. Is that It's not that you're physically pulled over to the bait, but it's this concept you're going to have to, you're dragged out by your lust pattern. That the lust makes you look at it and say, go for it. Look at what, what's in front of you. You want that. I know you do. So it's that concept of dragging that we have the same thing that, that, that really the, the paradigm is that you are forced to deal with something, either to take it or to reject it. John 6, 44, John 12, 32, I'll harmonize. Um, in John 12, 32, you can read verse 33, and that's how you know that it's the cross that's, being, that's the point of the dragging. Um, so then we have the volition of the believer and this process here with testation that harmonizes perfectly with the volitional choice of the believer to either accept Christ or reject him when he's brought to that point of the cross. You want harmony of God's word, you don't get much better than this kind of thing. The same principle that applies to this being dragged, the same exact word, the same protocols, all puts you to this point. It's the same thing we deal with John 6.44 and John 12.32.
You're dragged to a point of having to deal with something. What you choose to deal with at that point makes or breaks it. Okay. If, if you accept the bait, okay, you're at, at that point of the bait, you've got to deal with it with your choice that God's given you. If you accept it, your lust takes you and the bait and makes you one together. We call this cohabitation. Okay? This is where the sex ed classes can start kicking in, all right? Depending upon your sin nature. The result of the cohabitation or oneness is the production of sin. So sin is, re is a result of being made, being your lust making you two one. And it's that lust that is acting as the agent, which was empowered, and note this, which was empowered by the individual's volitional capability. What that means then, is that it, and if you're saved, this is far more true to some degree than if you're not saved. If you're not saved, the principle still applies. Okay, but if you're not saved, you have no choice but to do unrighteous works. Because you don't have the Holy Spirit within you. You don't have to depend upon God. It's possible until you come to that point of the cross and deal with it. But when you get to this point of having to deal with it, deal with sin, your volitional choice, the choice you make, either empowers your lust to take you on further or stops it dead in its tracks. Now, it sounds like you're acting apart from God, maybe. But God's commanded you to continue to depend upon Him and not your desire. So when you make that choice, you're choosing dependence upon God over dependence upon yourself. Having failed to implement Bible doctrine through dependency upon scriptural truths, the individual produces a bad work, bad buddy, a bad work of unrighteousness which will be burned up as wood, hay, or stubble at the future evaluation of his stewardship responsibilities on earth. The judgment seat of Christ, eschatology, fun study, good stuff. Basically, believers get evaluated based upon what they've done, whether it was good or bad, not sinful or righteous. Okay. There's another judgment um, that Christ is involved with. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. That's when everyone's cast into hell. There's actually no evaluation process. If you're at that point, you've already been evaluated long before. That's the sentencing phase. So this is what happens if, if we accept the bait that's set before us. If we reject the bait, the test has been successfully overcome, and the work of Satan and company has been momentarily thwarted. Sounds kind of like a hall of victory when you use that kind of terminology. Except that this builds up your spiritual maturity to the point that you start getting this reflexive concept in. B, he remains in fellowship. When we, when we reject the bait, we remain in fellowship with God and under the control and tutelage of the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit remains able to teach us. Tutelage was my 10-point word. It's a fun word to say. It's, a, it, it's right up there with, with a lot of the Greek words. Having utilized dependency upon doctrine found in God's word, we produce a good work, which God declares is good, not us, that has natural value, and it's a good work of righteousness, part of God's plan, which is a part of our future stewardship evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. When we get to that judgment seat of Christ, our actions will be evaluated. We won't be. Our actions will be, whether they're righteous or unrighteous. And what way that God defines that is whether it's got value or doesn't have value. First Corinthians chapter 3 is where we're getting all this. If you want to go read it um, and have questions on it later, that's great. We have a question submission page on our website that everyone's all excited about. No one's actually used. So, no pressure. No pressure. I don't really care. It's up. If you have a question, ask it. If you don't, no big deal. Okay? That's an infomercial. Yes. That's my plug. Get that in there. Okay, so the, my session brought to you by the question, yeah. question submission page on why the Union Church website. 
Okay. Do it. What? <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. So this is what we are supposed to do, obviously. We know that. We know this is God's plan. We know that this is what's going to be beneficial to us, that God has identified as what's beneficial to us and glorifying to Him. So, going back to our knowledge plus faith equals action. If we're not doing this, either our knowledge is faulty or we're not depending upon these truths in our life. Dun, dun, dun. That equation is huge to understand our actions. If we know that everything is a result of our knowledge and our dependency upon that knowledge, we can either change the knowledge or decide to depend upon it. We can fix it. All that obviously is under the instruction and depends upon God and our relationship with Him. Because the instant we're doing it on our own, we're not listening to this stuff anyway. Any questions? <laughs>